Hello, everyone, and welcome. I'm very pleased to have Dr. Michael Ennenbach as my guest today. Dr. Ennenbach is an associate clinical professor in the Child and Adolescent Division of Psychiatry at UCLA, where he is also the Assistant Director of Clinical Services. A graduate of the University of Kansas School of Medicine, he attended UC San Francisco for his general psychiatry residency and completed his Child and Adolescent Fellowship at the University of Washington. From 2009 to 2016, he worked with the Lanterman Regional Center as a psychiatrist in their outpatient clinic and at their crisis homes in Montebello and Pomona. He currently sees patients on the inpatient child and adolescent psychiatry unit at the Resnick Neuropsychiatric Hospital at UCLA, as well as in his outpatient teaching clinics and faculty practice. Welcome, Michael, and thank you so much for joining me today to talk about some of the important mental health issues faced by those with special needs. Thank you so much for having me. To begin, um, can you please talk about your work with autistic patients on the inpatient unit? Sure. Um, So I've been attending on the inpatient unit since 2009, and um, UCLA is one of the few um, psychiatric hospitals that will admit autistic individuals, especially lower-functioning, aggressive autistic um, children. So we have a special program that we work with them um, that includes behavioral training, medication management, uh, as well as including other services uh, from the outpatient team. Um, We do a lot of crisis management on the inpatient service. It's not um, a long-term solution for things, but we can oftentimes use medication to um, control the behaviors, whether it's aggression or self-injury. Um, as well as doing a medical workup to see if there's any other things going on. You know, oftentimes constipation or dental caries can, can contribute to aggression. So we do a full medical workup. Um, and it's been very satisfying. It's been, it's been a really good experience, and I think that families are very appreciative of, of our care there. Well, what are some of the challenges with autistic patients who have other psychiatric disorders as well, such as psychosis, bipolar disorder, or ADHD? Yeah, that can quite a challenge. Um, you know, as we know, autistic, autistic individuals have, um, can have very rigid uh, thought patterns. It can be difficult to differentiate what may be reported as auditory hallucinations from an internal thought dialogue, uh, so that always becomes challenging. I certainly have had autistic patients who have been masked by bipolar disorder, and when I teach my residents, the first thing I always teach them is that just because someone has autism doesn't mean that they're immune to every other psychiatric disorder. Um, a lot of disorders are common with, with autism, including ADHD, and some optional defiant disorder, intermittent explosive disorder, but if I have a patient who's nonverbal and they come in and they're aggressive, the differential diagnosis is pretty long. You know, we all start with medical issues. Like I said, constipation, dental caries, headaches, things like that are important to rule out. Um, oftentimes, <clears throat> puberty can um, really throw a patient off that was really doing well. Uh, and that's 
So we get a lot of 11, 12, 13-year-old kids who are doing fine and had actually no contact with psychiatry and ended up on our unit. Um, and that's something, you know, we consult with pediatrics um, about as well. Once we get through that, you know, there is primary aggression in autism, which there are, you know, two FDA-approved medications for, risperidone and aripiprazole. Um, but once we do that, if, a, if a, an autistic patient who's nonverbal can't communicate their needs, that can cause aggression. So what is the way of communication at home? Do they use a picture schedule, an iPad? How can we improve the communication? We have a speech and language um, consultant on the unit that can help with that as well. Um, are they depressed? Are they anxious? And it's, sometimes it's impossible to know. And you re- we really use medications in the least um, aggressive way with these kids. And unfortunately, because there's so much, um, the differential is so big, these, these kids can end up on polypharmacy because it's tried this for depression, this for aggression, this for mood stabilizer. Um, and a lot of my work with Lanham and Regional Center when I worked there was really simplifying the medications um, because it can, it, can, it can very much happen with the kids. But it, it can be really challenging to, to differentiate medical causes, uh, endocrine causes, and psychological causes for increase in aggression. Hmm. Well, by the way, uh, just as a side note, I want to let our audience know that you are an extremely busy individual, and we so much appreciate your time. Um, and I am catching you on the fly. You're calling in on your cell phone. So um, I'll ask the audience to please excuse a couple of little glitches that might happen here and there when we might lose a word or something like that. Um, but fortunately, most of them are coming through, so so we should be okay. okay. All right. We should be Let okay. me know if it's worth. I can, I'm in the best room in my house, I think. But Okay. <laughs> All right, yes, which leads me, which leads me to the next question. Um, how have the limitations caused by the current COVID infection climate? Because we are in the middle of this pandemic right now, and, um, you know, a lot of things are closed down. How has it affected things like closure of services, lack of certain supports, and so on? Yeah, it's been really, I mean, interesting and difficult in several ways. When the pandemic first started um, and things started shutting down in March, we actually had this, this downtick in inpatient admissions um, across the board, not only with autistic children and adults, but um, with, with all patients. And I think initially there was this reluctance to parents bringing their kids to the emergency room and that they didn't want to be exposed to COVID. They were worried about, you know, anything else they could be exposed to. But after about three weeks, we've been pretty much full on the unit. We have a 21-bed unit, um, and we've been pretty full since April. And I think that a lot of what happened, you know, there are the non-autistic kids who have, you know, familial challenges and at home all the time is a hard but then there's also, you know, for our autistic kids, they've lost their day programs. They're not having in-person ABA. They don't have their day program to go to. And so they're stuck at home without a lot of stimulation. They can't go outside very much. And it's putting a real strain on the family. And so there's an increase in aggression, and we've seen a lot more hospitalizations because of that. Well, that's a, that's a very good point. And a lot of people don't realize how 
um, things like these closures and, and what's going on right now, the, the domino effect that it can have in so many different ways. Um, so can you, can you tell us a little bit about the two services at UCLA that uh, do the ADOS autism evaluation and the associated treatment? Yeah, of course. We have two outpatient clinics that I believe are opening up um, to in-person evaluations again uh, this month. Um, one is through the Department of Psychiatry. Um, it's called the CAN Clinic. Um, and just so your listeners know what an ADOS is, it's the Autism Diagnostic Observation Schedule. Uh, it's the gold standard for diagnosing autism. And actually, the professor who developed that uh, recently joined faculty at UCLA, so we're really lucky to have her. And there, so the CAN Clinic is one. That's the Department of Psychiatry uh, in the Division of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry. It's a very good program. There's another program through the pediatric department, uh, through the developmental pediatric um, track. Um, that, that evaluation may be more accessible to some people because they do take Medi-Cal um, and other insurances, where the CAN Clinic is a little bit more private pay, but they're both excellent resources and excellent ways to get a, a really firm diagnosis of autism. All right. Well, that is very good information for people to have. I'm sure they'll appreciate knowing that. Um, um, i also add that um, our CAN clinic through the department also does brief therapy and uh, treatments for about six months, uh, so there is the added benefit of that, but um, it can be more expensive. What about people, this is just a side note, a thought that I had, what about people who are out of the area and they may not be in Los Angeles, they may be in a different part of the state or even in another state, is there a way for people to access these services even if it's not in person, perhaps remotely or or in another way? Um, Is that something that's possible? That's a really good question. You know, the, the ADOS is a nationally uh, standardized diagnosis, diagnostic system, so that's available in person throughout the country. Um, I'm not exactly sure with the, you know, recent pandemic. I think we're trying to do a lot of it online, um, but it was difficult because a lot of the nuances in, you know, working with autistic children are lost um, over the Internet. Um, which is why they're starting in person again. Yeah, I, I, I don't work in the Department of Pediatrics, so I'm not sure what they've been doing as far as online versus in-person evaluations. But the Department of Psychiatry is starting in-person evaluations again. Um, as far as remote evaluations, you know, it's one of those things where that wasn't the case before. Um, but with this pandemic, we've really been, I mean, forced into using telepsychiatry and it's been a great thing that there are a lot of things we can do um, without necessarily in-person visits, which can include, you know, out of, out of the city, out of the state evaluations. So I'm not sure exactly if they're doing that right now because the in-person is just, um, it's just a better way to get to know a kid. Um, but anywhere you live, if there's a major medical center they, or regional centers, they all are capable of doing the ADOS. Okay, good. Well, that's uh, definitely good to know. Um, Can you please talk a little bit now about the intersection of LGBTQ patients who are also people with autism? Yeah, of course. Um, It's a really interesting subset of 
the autistic population. And um, it's something that we encounter more in our mild to moderate um, functioning autistic individuals. Um, and as we know, individuals with autism have very fixated interests and very rigid ways of thinking often. And, um, you know, a lot of my patients in training, they get really focused on sea animals or trains. And sometimes it comes up where they become very focused on transgender issues. Um, and teasing that apart while being validating uh, of their concerns can be pretty. Um, you know, I've had a couple patients who um, it was really hard to tease apart whether they actually identify as transgender or whether it was their focus interest in that moment. And you really just have to wait and approach. Um, there's not a lot of way to intervene. I wouldn't push into the transgender side. I would be supportive and offer them any supports they have, but it can be tricky. Um, and, you know, working with transgender children is tricky at baseline, trying to, like, wait it out and stay feel in a few years, while also dealing with puberty, which an individual going through puberty of your assigned sex can be very traumatic. Um, so, you know, there are ways to delay puberty to give them more time. But I've had, I've had several autistic patients with, um, you know, gender identity issues, and I would say about half of them persist and half of them don't. Um, but it to me, you know, patients, their brains think differently, and it's hard to get to the root of what's actually going on versus what's a fixated interest. Um, and you want to be validating and supportive of all of those things. Uh, but it, it's, a, it's a particular challenge that I've, that I've worked with, and I, and I like that challenge. Um, you know, I work a lot with the LGBTQ community uh, in Los Angeles and at UCLA, and, um, you know, they, it, it, it can be challenging, obviously. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting to, you know, to hear your opinion and, and viewpoint on that and the point that you make about, you know, sometimes it being difficult to kind of, you know, tease tease those things apart in terms of whether, as you say, whether it's a fixation or whether it's, you know, a, a true um, identity that, you know, that they are feeling or whatever that is. That's uh, It's a very interesting and a very good point, I think, that, you, that you've made. Um, what are some of the medications that are sometimes indicated for autistic patients which you have found to be helpful? Um, yeah. <clears throat> You know, the number of medications that are actually FDA approved for certain symptoms in autism are relatively few. Obviously, there's not a medication for autism, right? So we have behavioral therapies, um, other therapies that work for the core symptoms of autism. The two um, medications approved for irritability in, in autism are called risperidone and aripiprazole. Uh, they're both neuroleptics or antipsychotics that are used in many ways. They're, they're used for mood stabilization, they're used for schizophrenia, but they've also been shown to be affected in that sort of aggression in autism. So if we really feel like that's the primary issue going on, your doctor will probably start with one of those two. 
Um, there are other medications. There are so risperidone and aripiprazole are newer uh, neuroleptic medications. Older ones, which you may have heard of, are called haloperidol, chlorpromazine, thorazine. Um, these medications are much older. Now, they are also very effective in aggression and autism. And medications have a different risk of side effects. The risperidone and aripiprazole, they can cause diabetes, high cholesterol, heart disease, weight gain, and that's something that has to be monitored very closely. The what we call the first-generation neuroleptics, your haloperidol and haloprometine, long-term use can lead to permanent movement disorders. Um, and that's something we would see with schizophrenic patients taking it for 30 or 40 years. Um, and I think it's a good discussion to have with your doctor, you know, sort of the, the cost-benefit of either of those medications. Um, I certainly, in the inpatient units, if someone's failed the aripiprazole or risperidone, I go to chlorpromazine. I've had it work very well. Um, it doesn't have the same metabolic side effects, the, the glucose, the cholesterol. It can cause some weight gain, but, you know, that's what we're talking about. Those are the medications we talk about with, you know, aggression in autism. Like I mentioned earlier, what else is going on? There, there could be depression, anxiety, which we would treat with an SSRI, like, like fluoxetine um, or sertraline. Um, there can be mood stabilization issues. They can be manic, in which case we would think about lithium. Um, and I think, you know, again, there's, there's not an algorithm per se about how to medicate a patient with autism. And it varies depending on their functional level. Uh, it varies on their patient so you may go to different doctors who have very different thoughts of where to start. And, you know, none of those may be wrong, um, but we all, you know, put on our detective cap and try and figure out what the primary source of the presentation is. So a lot of those medications can be really helpful. Other medications that we use, a class called benzodiazepines, clonopin, adipin, uh, you may have heard of those. Uh, helpful for anxiety, um, but uh, sometimes autistic patients have a paradoxical reaction to them and actually it can make them more aggressive. So in the hospital, it's something we can really watch for. There's a huge overlap in autism and ADHD. Um, in fact, our previous diagnostic manual, the DSM-4, uh, it was a rule out in that you couldn't have both diagnoses at the same time because they were so common with each other. Uh, DSM-5, the most recent manual, separated that out so people can technically have the diagnosis of ADHD and autism. So oftentimes these patients are treated with stimulants, uh, you know, your Ritalins, your Adderalls. Those can also be helpful with the impulsivity that we see um, in patients. So there's, there's just there's a lot of medications to choose, and, you know, it's sometimes you really have a firm idea of what's going on with our nonverbal kids. But sometimes we have to just make our best educated guess and, and try something that, you know, causes the least side effects and see if that works and then go from there. Well, at this point, I'd like to ask you, is there anything else that you'd like to add that we haven't covered? And what do you think is the most important takeaway for our listeners to remember from our conversation? Um, you know, the thing I, one thing I'd, I'd like to have as takeaway is, you know, in Los Angeles, 
um, we're very rich with resources for um, autistic patients with our regional centers and um, UCLA, um, but throughout the country, major medical centers and child psychiatry departments are a wonderful resource for complex cases. Um, so in whatever state you live in, those, those um, resources exist. Um, and I think it's one of those things where, you know, it, it can be really frustrating as a parent, um, which is understandable that um, your child or your adult autistic um, child um, is struggling and sometimes there's not an easy fix for it. And behavioral therapy, whether it's ABA or other things, that just takes a long time to, to really get set. Um, and there's a lot of turnover in ABA therapists. Sometimes they're quite young and inexperienced. Right now in the pandemic, it's not happening in person. So there's a lot of challenges right now. And, you know, medications can be helpful. They're not the, the, the end-all, be-all of, of solving issues, but they can be helpful. And I think both as, you know, providers and, and parents, it's, it requires some patience to try and figure out what is the best medication for my child. Um, and it can, it can take a while to figure it out, but I can tell you that of, you know, all the patients in 11 years that I've had on the inpatient unit, they all get better. Um, it may take us a little while to figure it out, um, but they improve. And so there is hope, and I want you to, to remember that. Well, please tell us, how can our listeners reach you if they have questions or if they want to know more? Of course. Um, you can uh, call my office. Uh, my assistant is Catherine. Her number is 310-825-1309. Uh, alternatively, you can email me at work. It's M as in Mike, my last name, N in Bach, M E N as in Nancy, E N as in Nancy, B as in boy, A C H, at MedNet, M as in Mike, E D as in dog, N as in Nancy, E T, dot UCLA dot edu. All right, and I'm going to repeat that as well. That was M N in Bach, M. E-N-E-N-B-A-C-H at mednet.ucla.edu. Is that correct? Yes. Okay, great. Um, Well, thank you so very much, Michael, for your time and for sharing some very helpful information with us today. Sure, it's been my pleasure. I also want to thank our listeners for spending a part of their day with us. I'm Gilda Evans reminding you to take care of yourself and that special person in your life.